0: This is Elisa Crawley,
1: and John Ebersole,
0: and you are listening to Hall Pass. All right, so today we are once again looking at the intersection of two marginalized identities in the classroom. And this time we're going to go through research that has shown how bias, lack of teacher training, racist and retributive behavior management practices place students of color with disabilities into the school to prison pipeline. And just to add before we begin, I think it's important to address that I am white. I am working through my own implicit biases within education and a lot of this research which has to do with culture, white supremacy in the classroom, and anti-blackness is important for all teacher education programs. And I know John and I both hope to bring the information that we have learned back to our fellow white cohorts so as they move on in the classroom we can help start to eliminate some of these problems that these biases bring. Throughout this episode I'm going to be using person first language. I know there are some disability communities that have said they prefer identity first. It's because this research isn't targeting one disability community. I'm going to use person first in general. And also before we begin, John, I think it's important that we take a moment in our podcast to acknowledge that both of our episodes have been about intersectionality, which is not a term that we, by any means, came up with on our own. Um, it was by scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, um, which she first used back in 1989 in her paper, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Policies. And it's important that we address them, much of the language we are using to describe the coming together of these two marginalized identities was created by Crenshaw in her work. So we are thankful cool to her for that. Yeah. So we're going to start in the classroom. So with the research that I found, I found it helpful to begin talking about classroom culture and training within the general education setting. A lot of research shows that in urban education, there is a pattern of white normativity in the classroom, and it's not only a normativity in curriculum, but it is an anti-Blackness that is perpetuated by educators.
1: Could you define white normativity for me for a second?
0: Sure, so white normativity is looking, it could be at curriculum, it could be at behavior through the lens of a white administrator or teacher as being the normative. So any differentiations from that, they would see as alien and as abnormal when it is just not part of white culture.
1: Okay, sweet.
0: So research has shown that black children are less likely to bond with their teachers and school administrators because of this lack of cultural congruency. Parents are less likely to trust the school's behavioral analysis of their child as well. Researcher Moody writes, and I quote, there is a strong possibility that perceived misbehavior and inattention usually stems from a relationship issue with the teacher. So we can already see the problems that we might have if the teacher is Seeing behavior, not recognizing it because of a cultural reason, and labor- labeling it as inappropriate behavior in the classroom, and how that might affect students of color. So, the implicit biases the white teachers have towards black boys is often created, some researchers have hypothesized, by stereotypes from the white teacher's childhood, which then, of course, as you can imagine, would go into a cycle. So a white teacher has a bias against black boys, which they perpetuate in the classroom, um, punishing black boys disproportionately. Then other white students would notice this. They would start to form the bias that black students do not behave, black boys do not behave a certain way, and then carry that with them as they grow up. And for black girls, Morse says in her book, Push Out, that there are multiple ways in which racial, gender, and socioeconomic inequity converge to marginalize Black girls in their learning environments, relegating many to an inferior quality of education because they are perceived as defiant, delinquent, aggressive, too sexy, too proud, and too loud to be treated with dignity in their schools. And studies have shown that teachers make false assumptions regarding their bilingual students and students of color. Because of this lack of understanding of their students' culture and home life, when instead they could develop a better understanding by making space for student feedback and ideas.
1: So it sounds like teachers' perceptions and biases tend to fall into racist stereotyping of students of color, and that leads to misunderstandings, um, putting and like putting these students into boxes. So. Who are these teachers that are doing that?
0: Well, moving on to how these teachers are being trained. So in a 2006 study, Harry and Klinger reported that teachers in urban schools, with the majority African-American students, had fewer advanced degrees, they are less qualified, and they're more likely to demonstrate weak institutional and classroom management skills than teachers in other schools in the sample that they were looking at. So because these teachers are perceiving these students and perpetuating anti-blackness in the classroom as a behavioral issue, they are also more likely to be less qualified in general um, with classroom management skills. So their bias plus their inability to manage their classrooms is perpetuating into a lot of punishment, which we will discuss a bit later. That sucks. And then, of course, there is the issues with diagnosis, which I know, John, you talked a lot about diagnosis with autism in your episode. Um, There's a lot of different disabilities. There's a lot of different data regarding diagnosis. I'm going to give a few facts, but this is in no way a comprehensive look at the different disparities in diagnosis uh, because it is not the focus of this. I will touch on it because it is part of the process. but this is definitely not does not highlight all of the problems. So, first, research has found that there is an underdiagnosis of ADHD for black children. They are up to 70% less likely than their white counterparts to be diagnosed with ADHD. Latinx children are 50% less than their white counterparts, and then other races besides white are 40%, 46% lower. It has also been observed that where students go to school can influence diagnosis as we talked about as well, John. In one study, Black and Latinx students were found to be more likely to be identified with a disability if they attended a predominantly white institution, which we talked about a lot last time. The differences in diagnosis were more Black students diagnosed with learning disabilities and more Latinx students diagnosed with speech and language impairments, which we already see, some racist stereotypes and biases here. So there's underdiagnosis, there's overdiagnosis. There's a lot of racist and institutional issues in the diagnosis of students of color with disabilities in the classroom.
1: So they're being pretty much misunderstood and their actions are being misinterpreted due to lack of quality teaching staff and inherent by implicit biases on the teaching staff's part. what And you mentioned that they're being punished. What is the result of this for those students' lives?
0: Well, it all is gonna play into our school-to-prison pipeline system. So, and we even what you said, they're being, not being culturally understood, but if a student does have ADHD, which does result in behaviors, they are not being diagnosed with that and given support for behavior plans that they need. So these teachers then are participating in what is part two of this pipeline, exclusionary discipline. So exclusionary discipline is, includes in and out of school suspension and expulsion. It's what it sounds like it's being removed from the educational setting. And these are part of a belief in zero tolerance policies or GTPs that severely punish students who exhibit disruptive behavior in order, which they say to create safer classroom environment and discourage other students from engaging in the same behavior. So sort of a tough on crime attitude of punish students, it will make everyone else opt out less. However, of course, because we already know there's bias in the classroom, people who are subject to it, it's disproportionate. So I'm pulling here a lot of data from the US Department of Education and some really disturbing numbers. So these are all quotes. Students with disabilities represent 12% of the population, but 58% of those placed in seclusion or involuntary confinement, and 75% of those physically restrained at school to immobilize them or reduce their ability to move freely. Black students represent 19% of students with disabilities served by IDEA, but 36% of these students who are restrained at school students with disabilities are more than twice as likely to receive an out-of-school suspension than students without disabilities. So these two, these two data points show that disability status and if you, are, if you are black, you are doubly marginalized to be excluded from school.
1: That it is, is so brutal.
0: And it only gets worse. Some more quotes from the U.S. Department of Education. Black students are suspended and expelled at a rate three times greater than white students. On average, 5% of white students are suspended compared to 16% of black students. Black girls are suspended at higher rates than girls of any other race or ethnicity and most boys. Students with disabilities represent a quarter of students arrested and referred to law enforcement, even though they are only 12 percent of the overall student population. So because black students are overrepresented in suspensions, expulsions, and in-school arrests, they are also overrepresented in students losing instruction time. And I would imagine the same would be said for students with disabilities. So these students are losing instruction time because of exclusionary punishment, but that is not all. Many students are arrested because of zero-tolerance offenses, at times for things that they wouldn't be arrested for if they committed these things on the street. It's only within the school setting. Other times, it is the fact that a student has multiple minor offenses, which is not difficult to accumulate because of the rigidity of the system. If you have a system that encourages punishment and is fueling teacher bias, it's going to be a lot easier to be referred to juvenile detention. And another study drawing from three state and two national databases show that students who are disciplined one year are more likely to go to the juvenile justice system the next year. So we have students started in the classroom. We have racist tendencies of the teachers. We have students who are underdiagnosed with a disability. We have students who are being disproportionately punished. And now moving on to the juvenile justice system. So part three is juvenile detention. So what are the demographics of those in juvenile detention? We're gonna talk about first about who is more likely to go um, and these will not be surprising after the statistics we already mentioned. So this is a quote from Kincaid and Sullivan's 2019 study. Students with disabilities are a greater relative risk of court referral for committing crimes against person property and public order and for school offenses than youth without disabilities. Another study found that African American students have been found to be a greater risk to go from school exclusion to juvenile justice settings. So again we're looking at the overlap. There's not a lot of research here where you find race and disability so we have to put the two together in this and look at this intersectionally about how a student could be incredibly disproportionately marginalized for having these two identities. The same study I just mentioned, drawing from the state and national databases, found that Latinx students with a learning disability are more likely to come into contact with the juvenile justice system than other students with a learning disability. And that, and I quote, all students diagnosed with an emotional disturbance are more likely to be referred to juvenile justice. However, Mendoza, who is the author of the studies just mentioned, found that females diagnosed with an emotional disturbance are more likely to encounter the juvenile justice system than males, which is interesting. A lot of the research going forward is going to be from Anama. She studies the intersection of race and disability, specifically in girls and young women of color with disabilities in a juvenile justice setting. I wish I could have drawn on more studies to go forward, but the research just isn't there yet for these two intersectional identities, and I hope to see more in the future. But the next two studies are from There, One is from 2014, one is 2015. They actually both take place at the same two schools. In both, she interviews women of color and girls of color and their teachers in the juvenile justice setting. One study had ta- 10 young women of color who have been diagnosed with an emotional disability. And then the second one focused more on teacher perceptions of their students with disabilities, students of color, excuse me, with disabilities. And it focuses on 16 teachers, but it also involves the input of 34 students. And both of these schools are on the west coast of the United States. She's not super specific um, about what schools they are in. Uh, they are both in the juvenile justice schools, so they've been. All the students have been court ordered to these schools. One of the schools was co-ed, and then the other school was all girls. All right. So first, Anema points out that there is a lack of special education services for these girls and young women of color with disabilities in the juvenile justice setting. In her 2015 study, there was a huge confusion among staff about what services were being provided to who. There was inconsistency in staff perceptions versus the reality of what services were being delivered. Both of the schools had one fully trained special education teacher in the 2014 study. In one of the schools, she was actually only part-time, and she said that in the first few months she was there, she didn't even meet any of the students because she had to catch up on so much paperwork. So you can imagine that services were not being adequately delivered to these young women. Her services- Isn't were, that
1: against the law?
0: It is against the <laughs> law, which Inama also points out in her, in her research. It is illegal. They, she signed off on their IEPs, but she was not giving them the services that they qualified for.
1: That's, that's disgusting. That not only are schools- creating this environment that doubly punishes certain people, they're also then not doing what they should be doing to support those people.
0: No, and they're getting further and further pushed into the school to prison pipeline as they go along. There is no restorative justice in this. If there was even a need for justice in the first place against these students towards these students, it's it's very, very disturbing. Yeah, so the special education teacher who I mentioned is part-time, who didn't really have time for individualized services because of her caseload, also thought that her students were seeing a therapist every day. You know, she said, oh, it's all right, though. They see the therapist every day, when in fact, it was sometimes barely once a week. So she wasn't sure about what services the students were getting. It didn't seem like there was a great amount of keeping track of these services. Um, And then overall, looking at other teachers, there was a lack of teacher training in general. In her 2015 study, during the teacher interviews, two out of 16 teachers said that they felt prepared to work with their students with disabilities. Teachers also had minimal experience in training in special education, and content teachers only had a little bit of training in special education. So one person with a license spread out across the school part-time, not given the students their individualized services. And these are student, young women of color who have been labeled with emotional disabilities. But now let's look at this, the student persp- perspectives. So what does this make students feel? So she reports that students of color with disabilities felt that compliance was valued over their emotional and academic needs. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the rules in these kinds of schools in a minute. The girls also felt that they received special education services because they were not smart enough, which we know is not true. So they had a very negative perception of themselves. Other students denied that they had a disability altogether and they felt confused by their diagnosis. While some were very positive and enjoyed the connections that they had had over their lives with special education teachers. Some students reported that they did not feel like they were receiving the academic support that they needed in the classroom, which is really no surprise regarding the circumstances. Now to think about the teachers, what are the content teachers thinking in all of this? And this is a quote from AnaMA which summarizes what was going on pretty well. Teachers wanted to build relationships, but were limited by the subscription to the girl's identity as criminal and the commitment to surveillance. Instead of status that elicited support, teachers socially constructed racialized disability as another thing to surveil, perpetuating the commitment to whiteness as an identity and property in the pipeline. So some teachers described the girls of color disabilities they taught as lazy, manipulative, and criminal. And whiteness is property, something that Inama uses, uh, which according to her in education to quote, is a significant signifier of who reaped the benefits of education through the value of property owned. So, whiteness is property towards those, awards those with social benefits, such as being white, which is both material and immaterial benefits, and punishes those without. So, these people were had, had disabilities. So, that's one. one way they were marginalized. And they're also girls who are people of color. So they were double marginalized and perpetuated the whiteness' property within the classroom because their, their teachers were not supporting them and were further marginalizing them. And we come back to white normativity within the classroom. So within the classroom curriculum, one teacher said, and I quote, I address race by not addressing it. So a lot of teachers went with a kind of classic colorblind method of teaching They ignored the marginalized identities of students in the classroom. They did not address and I quote, race, racial inequities or cultural practices of non-dominant populations in the classroom. They othered these students even further within the juvenile justice setting. But the setting also tried to enforce other social norms through what I kind of thought was posture policing. Um, So, it's what anama describes as socializing practices and she defines it as the rituals and routines that were meant to teach participants about the philosophy of the program so these are rules like you have to be quiet when you walk into the classroom or you once in class you have to sit all the way straight in your chair with two feet on the ground at all times and you know these weren't just rigid but they were rigidly enforced as well so it's you know it looks like back with the zero tolerance policies you know, again, from the gen ed setting. She observed that in one study, there was 45 minutes of class time and 26 of those minutes were spent trying to implement the sitting posture and disposition rules that were required for students. So over half of class time dedicated to making sure all the students were sitting a certain way, which we all know you don't, you cannot define a way a student sits with how best they learn. we all know that individually for ourselves, but this is what the teachers were focused on. As I mentioned earlier, the students said that they felt like the teachers cared more about compliance than their actual growth and learning. So this is very, very concerning. So we talked about how students of color disabilities in the urban setting are marginalized because of both race and disability status. They are disproportionately punished and then more likely to go to a juvenile justice setting where they are not likely to receive their legally mandated services. Now, some research, researchers have offered solutions, uh, some better than others, so wanted to go through a few of those. So to combat the disproportionate amount of exclusionary discipline for students of color disabilities, researchers Green, Cohen, and Stormont suggested the creation of an equity team in classrooms. This team would reflect the demographics of the student population, would be made up of parents or community members and school staff that would advise the creation of behavior plans while administrators would hold the educators accountable for the implementation. I wasn't sure about how I felt about this because it puts the work on people of color. You know, you're asking the community and other people to make sure that this white teacher isn't exhibiting biases, which Keeping white teachers accountable is important, but you would think that'd be an administrative move or with more training or more more emphasis on the white teacher either changing or you know leaving education because of the biases that they're holding are harmful. So I think it's important, especially as white people, as we're talking about solutions, to not be putting the emphasis on education onto people of color, but as white people, you know, educating other white people and being responsible for addressing our own biases that we have. So they also suggested a few other me- measures, which similar to what I mentioned, a diversity and culture- cultural responsiveness training for staff. So that's good, goes back to staff. Um, they said school-wide initiatives with research. They suggested you know subscribing to research magazines, um, just having the staff be more informed and also have behavior plans more accessible to staff members. Another researcher suggested to train teachers to use positive behavioral supports in the classroom rather than exclusionary punishments. So moving away from that zero tolerance policy from the real retributive justice. If you do this, you will get punished. You do this, you will leave the classroom. And rather than punishing this behavior, um, just reinforcing positive behavior in the classroom. Another researcher in his article White teachers' role in sustaining the school to prison pipeline suggests that teacher education should include a class for white prospective teachers on educating black boys so teachers could undo the harmful stereotypes that they hold against them. So, within a college curriculum, having a class where white teachers must confront their implicit biases towards black boys, as we see over over and over again, um, in particular, black and African American students. Who are being marginalized more than any other group, and really forcing teachers to come to terms with stereotypes they are holding and perpetuating in the classroom. Another proposal that the researchers suggested was to establish Afrocentric schools that would be all African American boys, where white teachers could then intern under teachers there to learn and undo their own biases. So. It's a very creative solution. The last suggestion that I will discuss is giving teachers the professional development to look at disability through a sociocultural lens. That way these needs wouldn't be coming out in the way the teachers were punishing students, but before, so they were including them in pedagogy. So just really making white teachers more aware of how they're perpetuating white normativity in the classroom Um, how the cultural identities of their students are marginalized, how there might be miscommunications because of this, so that there is less punishment in the juvenile justice setting. That was by a as well. So that is all I have. There's a lot of research that still needs to be done in this intersection of disability and students of color. You know, we saw in our research, there was a lot of marginalization of um, black and African-American boys, and there isn't as much research about them later in juvenile justice setting if they have a disability. So as we wait for more research to come, we see the clear flow and the process and how we as white teachers need to be aware of the implicit biases and stereotypes that we hold because it is harming students' lives.
1: Thank you for sharing all that. That is, I learned a lot.
0: Great. This is Elisa Crawley.
1: This is John Ebersol.
0: Thank you for listening to Hall Pass.